We are in the Gospel of John, and we're in chapter 4. Jesus has spent a few days in Samaria. He has done what the Jews would normally not do. And we talked about that pretty thoroughly last week, about the the racial tension between the Jews and the Samaritans that could be equaled to probably anything just about that we know today, maybe not as violent as some of the genocide and things that we taking place see taking place today where people are trying to wipe out whole tribes or races of people. Um, but it was very tense and very um, prevalent at that time. And so here comes Jesus... And he actually steps in to this place where that tension is and brings God's love and actually reveals to a Samaritan woman that he is, in fact, the Messiah. So who he is is not revealed to his people, the Jewish people. It's actually revealed to an outsider, a Samaritan woman, which stood out in John's mind, and that's why he's writing it. Remember, John is now looking some maybe 60, 70 years back and writing down all the things that he remembers Jesus saying and doing. And now, in the process of time, there is more clarity. You guys ever find that out, that as you get older, sometimes things become more clear? You ever look back and think, what on earth was I thinking? Why would I ever do something like that? Anyone? I get an amen. Okay, we're, we're all good. I'm feeling comfortable. You're all with me here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, John is looking back and saying, oh, this is what was taking place. And so he's just set this foundation that, God is reaching out to the world around him. Jesus is the Lord of all. And now we're going to continue, but in a vein where he is going to make his messiahship, I don't know if that's a real word, but make it known that he is the Messiah to the Jews. But it's notice the difference between how it was last week, this conversation that took place with the Samaritan woman and the conversation that takes place with the religious leaders. We're going to start in John chapter 4. Where are we? Um, 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed. Actually, we're going to um, verse 43. Sorry. After two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he sent to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. 
Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servant met him with news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when the son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. And so here is a miracle that Jesus does. He's back into a place where people are familiar with him. People are now again gathering around him because of the miracles that he's doing. Remember, he left when the Pharisees started to just be aware of him. He left trying to avoid that confrontation at the beginning. It seems like whenever miraculous things happen, Jesus will stay there for a short time and then move on, not to try and gather this big crowd or even this big following. And so here he comes to this place and everyone's there. Hey, yeah, let's see some more things that you're doing. And then there's this miracle that takes place. And it says in verse 46 that it's a royal official. And what it means by a royal official is it was someone who was in high standing at the court of Herod. And so here's someone who has prominence. And as this person has prominence, his son was sick. At Capernaum, Capernaum is about 20 miles away from where Jesus is right now. And that's why when Jesus tells him to go, he's leaving, but he's got to walk 20 miles. And so he now think about what it means when he says, okay, just go and trust me. It's not like he can call, hey, is he better? You know, hey, Jesus, he ain't better yet. Can you try it again? You know, he can't do that kind of a thing. Jesus says go, and he has to leave and walk away. So imagine that. That's the tension that's taking place within this own person's heart. And when he heard that Jesus is here, he went to him and begged him. I love that it says he begged him. Because all of a sudden it brings an emotion to this encounter. See, it doesn't matter your status. Pride goes out the window when the need is great. When it's a matter of your child, it's a matter of something that's this important, you'll beg. And so this is a great picture of humility. A person doesn't come to him and say, Jesus, I'm a royal official for Herod. I need you to come follow me right away. Because he did ask Jesus to come with him. But he comes and he's in a posture of need. A lot of people who Jesus reaches out to are in positions of need. Samaritan woman, we talked about her being kind of exiled, walking far to a well in the midday to get water. Here's a a man who's in need for his son. We're going to see another healing if we can get to it tonight. And and Jesus is meeting those who have needs. And it's showing us something. It's showing us the heart 
of God. And as he begs for him, he says, my son's clothed to death. And then Jesus says something, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. What do you think he means by that? Any thoughts? Yeah, it's like, I want to see something. Perform for me, Jesus. Do something. And especially those who have an understanding of who the Messiah is supposed to be. See, the Samaritans, they encountered him. They believed. Here, they're encountering him, but he's saying, you guys keep wanting things. Instead of just believing I'm the answer, you want. And truthfully, I mean, I think we fall into that place a lot of times. You know, I, I think a lot of people come to faith in this idea, well, okay, God, if you can prove yourself to me, then I'll believe. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I've shared the story of my brother. You know, he wasn't a, a follower of Christ, and my mom and myself, we were sharing with him, trying to, to get him to come with us to church and accept the Lord. And so we were kind of putting this in his ear. And then one day he lost a $100 bill and Back then, $100 was worth $100. You know, it was it meant a lot to him. I'm sure it means a lot to me now still. But he was like, finally, he said, okay, God, if you're real, show me where the $100 is. He had a one-room apartment. I mean, seriously, it was one room. The kitchen was attached to the room. And then he had, I think, a bathroom. And that was it. And he had tore the place up, could not find the $100 bill. He prayed, okay, if you're real, show me where the $100 is, and there it was on the table. And then he used it and went and bought drugs. Um, That's just the reality. So it didn't click with him at that point, but he remembers it to this point. You know, yeah, God did reveal that, and he came to faith um, in time. Anyway, God sometimes just has to answer a prayer to wake us up. And so we see that Jesus is aware of that. And the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. And so he's asking Jesus, a person of prominence is asking this carpenter's son, this obscure rabbi, to come with him. And Jesus' respond, you know, Jesus said, Go. Imagine that. I mean, just kind of capture the moment. Who's an official who you would think is prominent? You know, is it the mayor of the city? Is it a senator? You know, someone along that line, someone that's the chief of police, whatever it is. Here's a prominent official comes up to you and says, hey, I need you to come. I would probably say, okay, yeah, I'll go. Jesus doesn't. He says, go. He says, go, your son will live. And it's almost as if, Jesus is testing him to see what's going to happen, what's going to take place in this person's heart. It's almost like, you know, why would Jesus do this? There's other times where he would go and travel with them. There was a young girl who who was sick and then died, and Jesus traveled to her. Why wouldn't he travel to this guy? Curious. But he tells him to go. And he does. The man took Jesus at his word. I've got that highlighted. He said, okay, I trust you. At your word, I will go. And we see that that's faith in Jesus. He departs. And while he's on his way, the servant comes and he tells him, hey, your son's fever broke. And he says, well, when was it? It was yesterday about this time. He goes, yeah, that's about right. 
Again, it's 20 miles, so, you know, he's thinking, okay, I've got to hike back home. And as he's going, maybe he spends the night, travels, whatever that time is in between, he comes back and then he finds out that, wow, his word was true. I took him at his word and he was true. And boy, there's a lesson there, isn't there? To take Jesus at his word. Okay, but you see, it says in verse 53, then after the father realized that it was at the same time, at the very end it says, so he and his whole household believed. And remember, we've talked about that word believed. It's going to show up over and over again throughout John's gospel. And the idea believed means trust in. Okay, it's kind of a a way of just having faith in. They believed, they relied on. And so many times, again, that's the case. It's like, God does, okay, now I will trust in. God did, now I will trust in. Yes, he did it, okay, I believe it. And he believed a little bit, but then that assurance came. Yeah, he really did answer that. And, And so once again, Jesus meets the need, He does it in a a very unique way here. Are there any thoughts in this passage or questions maybe in these verses? Yes, Lola. Yeah, I mean, the Spirit of God is prompting him to write these things about Jesus. And and so God is giving him a revelation of what to write or inspiration of what to write. He's breathing through John. But John is recalling these things and putting them down. And and he's doing so with his understanding, his new understanding. Well, definitely. Definitely it's what God wants to, and it's probably what he wanted us to know too. I mean, those things probably went hand in hand. And so God ministered to John and through John, and John says this is what the people know, and that's what God was ministering for him to write down for us in that regard. So any other thoughts on these passages or these verses? Yes, Cindy. You know, I I don't think it's wrong to inquire of God, you know, of desiring him to direct our lives. I think it can be wrong sometimes like in the case where Moses was fleeing from Pharaoh in Egypt and he came to the Red Sea and he cried out to God and God says, why are you crying out to me? Go, you know, put your staff in the water and move. And so there's a time to cry out and then there's a time to move. And sometimes I think we can get into a place where we want God to show us every step because we're so afraid that we're going to make a wrong decision that we do nothing. You know, where it's like, okay, God, you know, should I go out with her or not? No, you're married. You shouldn't. You know, I mean, it's like, (laughs) but if I wasn't married, you know, should I go out with her or not? And then God says, well, I've given you understanding. You know, is this relationship a good one for you? Or are you just moved by a passion or something that's, void of other understanding. And it's like, well, I want you to tell me, God. And God's saying, I've given you enough to make this decision. You know, and and maybe you'll make a step and you'll find out, well, it didn't turn out as like I wanted to. Okay. You know, it's not like God is going to alleviate us of every heartache we're ever going to find. And I think that's what we think the will of God is. You know, if it's God's will, I won't be rejected. I won't have any problems. You know, she won't break my heart and there won't be any issues. I've never seen a relationship like that. 
You know what I'm saying? And so I don't think sometimes the will of God is seen as clearly as we would like it to be in that regard, but we should always inquire. You know, I mean, it's interesting because as we're going to talk on Sunday, you know, there's only one instance really where we see them praying in the book of Acts. And it's after a time of persecution. And as they're persecuted, they cry out and they pray to God and they say, God, hear their threats against us and all these things that they've done. And their prayer isn't get them. The prayer isn't stop them, rebuke them. Their prayer is give us boldness. And it's almost as if their mindset, and I think it's telling of where our mindset needs to be, is instead of God, make this go easy, it's like God, make me who I need to be. And so say I am I want to sell my house to do some work in another country. I feel like I need to sell my house because I want to step out into the mission field and this money is going to be provision. You know, and if I pray, well, if it sells quick, then it's God's will. Maybe it's God's will even if you have to sell it for less. Maybe it's God's will and you just need to push through it because God has put on your heart to do it. And whether it goes easy or not doesn't change the will of God for your life. And so you should be driven by the desire to serve God more than if the house sells or not. Does that make sense? You know, and sometimes I think that's the kind of thing where, well, but if it's God's will, I'll get a lot of money for the house. Well, God might bless you and give you, you know, people who are competing and offer it, but maybe you just need to push through it and sell the house and go. And well, how do I know? How do I know? Well, has God put that in your heart or not? You know, I need a sign, God, I need a sign. Isn't it good to go to another country and help people hear about it? Yeah, it's a great thing. Sounds like a sign to me. Sounds like the will of God to me. You know, but man, that's fearful. We don't want to do that. What if, what if I go and I fall? What if? Paul did that a lot. He went here, the door was shut. He went here, he got thrown in prison. How many times would we say, well, God shut the door? Why? Because Paul was in prison? No, God opened the door, sent me to prison, got me to Rome, you know, via the government, you know, it was self, it was subsidized, you know, tour to Rome. And so I think we just see things as being very, if it's the will of God, it should be easy, where the will of God should already be here in us and driving us to do, not basing everything else on whether it's God's will or not. And so I, I think that's kind of what Jesus is talking about. You guys are always wanting a sign. You're always wanting me to assure you, but I'm here. I've done miracles. You don't believe the things you've already seen. You got to see it again. You got to see it again. You got to see it again. How many times do you have to see God do a work before you said, you know what? I don't need to see any more. I know who you are. I just need to obey. I just need to do it enough and move forward. Okay, let's continue in chapter 5. The healing. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie in 
lie, used to lie the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in that, this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who had been made well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. Let's stop there. Okay. All right. Interesting account of a healing that takes place. Uh, again, this is happening at one of the Jewish festivals. There were three festival feasts where the the Jews were obligated. Anyone who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem was obligated to come. It was the Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Every adult male uh, who lived within that range was legally bound to attend, and we find that Jesus always did attend these festivals. And so he's there. We, we don't see his disciples with him, which is interesting. It's almost like he went for a stroll or something. You know, he's just kind of walking along, and here's this area where these pools are, and water was always thought of as to be kind of a, a sign of mystical powers. I mean, in, in legend, even in the Hebrew legends, there were thoughts of that, well, water could be stilled. I know in some of the older translations or King James translations that were on various manuscripts it gives this account where they believed an angel would touch the water and that's why the person would be healed and those were things that they were telling us so that we would understand why were they standing by the pool and so this guy was there by one of the pools and he was like hoping just for some chance to get touched you know or healed or at least that's what seems to be the case but what stands out to you in these verses i mean there's a few few zingers here. Bill? The better question is, yeah, hey, how did that happen? Which is insightful to where they were at, okay? Which is something we'll get into a little bit later, too, in this chapter. What else stands out to you? Yeah, Travis. Yeah, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> it's this Jesus guy. There was a lot of pressure in other words, this, this man who had been healed, it wasn't like they just let him go. There was actually the possibility of putting him up for charges and outcasting him or even sentencing him to death if they found it cause enough for him to have violated the law. And so here's a guy who you know, has been in a position of need under you know, um, this... Society, he has been 
requiring other people to care for him. And all of a sudden, he has the ability to care for himself, but there is this intense pressure on him. And so it's... You know, it's kind of leading, okay, hey, why? who is this guy? Who I don't know who he was. Well, you better find out or we're going to throw you in jail and we're going to take you before the Sanhedrin. Here's guys, I've never been anywhere, okay? I was carried to the pool and I was carried back and now you're going to take me to court. Now you're going to throw, I just got to walk and now I'm going to be confined in jail. I mean, this kind of thought, you know, like, wow, this is going, so there's a lot of pressure on him. Now, the question is, did Jesus know that would happen, or that kind of pressure. Why did Jesus find him? And what is Jesus's, well, you guys haven't asked that question yet, but what other questions do you have? Well, and his answer is saying yes, but it's kind of not hearing Jesus the way Jesus was meaning, Jesus saying, hey, do you want me to touch and heal you? And the guy was hearing, well, do you need someone to help you into the water? Kind of what he was saying. So let me ask you this. Why did Jesus ask him, do you want to be made well? Because he's not going to heal him if he doesn't. Maybe he's. Maybe that's his only means of making a living, is being an invalid and begging. So maybe, I, I mean, we don't know exactly, but Jesus asks him, which is curious, because he doesn't just heal him. He doesn't just go, hey, you... you you're an invalid, I'm going to heal you. He requires this person's, in a sense, permission before he will do this miraculous thing. Can't God do anything he wants? Well, they would actually carry them before the Sabbath and they would be able to stay there for that day. You know, I mean, they had it pretty down how these things worked out. He doesn't really understand what's Jesus saying, but in so many words, Jesus is saying, you know, do you want me to heal you? And he says, yeah, but roundabout. What's that? There's another question. Did Jesus heal everybody he saw that was an invalid? Appears not. Yes, Timothy. Yeah, definitely there's the need, and Jesus, again, goes to the person who's in need, but he does require. And so, you know, in a similar situation, a person who's in an addiction or a problem you know, and imagine Jesus would come up to them and say, do you want to be healed? And the person was like, yes, but he's asking him for a reason. He's asking him because the weight of this healing is going to also weigh upon him. And it's going to weigh upon him on the answer. Go ahead, Cindy. Yeah, John uses this to unfold that, and in his unfolding that, he lets us know that it's already developing, but yeah, this definitely is one of those things where it starts to become very prominent. And why did Jesus go on the Sabbath? He knew this was going to start a ruckus. You know, come on, Jesus, do you have to make waves? And, And again, remember, John is writing this to proclaim something, just like he was writing about the Samaritan woman and all that happened in Samaria, trying to give us an understanding of what God was doing. He's doing the same thing here, showing us that Jesus did something on their religious holy day that they didn't consider right. And we're going to walk into that conversation. John's gospel, a big chunk of it, is all about that, all about this law that is holding people into this kind of bondage and God is wanting to set him free from this legalistic 
bondage that they're in. And so let's push on a little bit ahead. I mean, Jesus heals this guy. The guy takes up his bed and he's walking. They're saying, you can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. In Jeremiah and in Nehemiah, both it talks about carrying a burden on the Sabbath day. But the idea was just carrying on as if the Sabbath day was just an ordinary day. You know, it didn't mean, okay, a burden, you can't carry a little mat. You know, it was talking about doing work, bearing a burden like you would in a job. And, but they've made it to mean, again, as we talked about before, every little thing. If we can find out exactly what the law means in every detail, then we will know exactly what the will of God. And they start focusing on the little details instead of missing the heart of the matter of what was really taking place. And so... The guy is healed. They're giving him a hard time. And then Jesus found him at the temple. The guy is now not at the pool and he's at the temple. I think that's also curious. I think that's a little story. The guy is now in the place of worship. Do you realize this guy probably never got to be in the temple? And now here he is in the temple and Jesus finds him. He didn't look for Jesus. Jesus found him in the temple. And he says, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What does that mean? Man, if you were that guy, what would you think? I'd be worse. (laughs) I was invalid for 38 years. Something worse. What does he mean? What could be worse than being an invalid for 38 years? Right? Do you think he's talking about just a physical? No, he's talking about something more, right? Don't fear him who's able to destroy the body. Fear him who's able to cast both body and soul into hell. There's something more that's taking place here. And so the idea of stop sinning, its idea is to make your life right with God. Okay, It's not like necessarily there was one specific thing this guy was doing. It's just you need to make your life in line with what God wants. And then Jesus says, and by the way, my name's Jesus. You know, it's like, I mean, he's letting them know so that this conversation can continue. And so, like you were saying, Travis, then the men went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Well, now he knew, and it's almost like Jesus was just saying, I just want you to know who it is. Okay, now I know. Now I can get the pressure off of me. And it's not necessarily he's throwing Jesus under the bus, because this guy did it. So if you're wanting to know the truth, this is the truth. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that he was throwing Jesus under the bus, but He's definitely letting them know, okay, you wanted to know, now I know. And he told them that Jesus made them well. And now we get into what you started off, Bill, at the beginning. What do you do when you find out this information? Here's a guy who was an invalid for 38 years. He just made this person well. What do you do with that information? What did they do? What? Yeah, well, and you think, wow, this is how did you do this? Who are you that are able to make this invalid guy well? Tell, talk to us. Give us some information in verse 16. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, he's defending what? That he healed a guy. Think about that. What do you have to say for yourself? 
What did I do wrong? Oh, you healed this guy, but you did it on the Sabbath. I'm telling you, people will do the strangest things in the name of their religion. And I'm talking about Christians. Okay, I'm not talking about other religions. People in the name of Jesus will be blind to the most obvious things and try and hold on to some forms of legalism that it will just appear strange. It will appear strange. Well, we can't listen to you because of this. Or, you know, if God was really, you know, reaching out to this person, they wouldn't be involved with this. I had a, just a, a brief dialogue with someone, a written dialogue, and it was amazing, you know, that this person's belief and view of the scriptures is one that God only loves those who are in the church. That Jesus didn't die for the world. He only died for the elect, the few. And he will defend that scripturally. And you read that and you're thinking, how do you come to that conclusion? When I read the accounts of Christ, the Samaritan woman, this guy, the, the writings of Paul reaching the, the uttermost parts of the earth, and I think no one except a religious person could come up with this idea. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is dealing with with these people. He's he's basically telling them, you know, you're the ones who are supposed to be representing God, and look what's going on here. Look what you're worried about. You're worried about the Sabbath when there's this man who is a child, a son of Abraham, who's now able to walk, and you're disregarding that completely. And so... Jesus is defending himself, and he says, verse 17, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is at work to this day, and I too am working. God is at work even on the Sabbath. This is what Jesus is saying. You see, the sun shines, the rivers still flow, uh, the process of birth and, and death, it all takes place on the Sabbath as if, It was on any other day, and that's the work of God. And just as God does not stop doing what he does, I am not stopping what I do. We need to understand Jesus' words are not cryptic to the Jewish leaders. His words are very in your face, this is who I am. And we're going to see that comes to the head. He's clearly attributing his actions to God's actions. And that's that's why he says in verse 18, making himself equal to God, as we're going to read. I mean, he's, he's saying these things so that they understand. He says, God's working, and so I'm working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, it meant nothing less than that the work of Jesus and the work of God were the same. 
When he says God's working and I'm working, he's saying it's the same. Even on the Sabbath, God's love, God's mercy, God's compassion are in action, and so are mine. And there's no doubt about it. They understood clearly what he was saying. And the words that are used here were, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him because he was breaking the Sabbath. He was calling God his father and making himself equal. All those verbs are in the imperfect tense, which describes a repeated action. Clearly, this story is just a sample of what Jesus was constantly doing. And so he was constantly healing. He was constantly, in their mind, breaking the Sabbath. And so this was something he was doing, and he was making himself equal to God. Verse 19, it says, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he it is pleased to give. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and now has come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Now let's stop there. The Son of Man in that phrase is the claim to Messiah. Again, there is no doubt to what Jesus is saying here, but notice how different this conversation is from that of the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman, hey, yeah, I'm the one. I'm the guy. And now this one is very confrontational and it's very forceful. Hey, what gives you the right? I am the Messiah. That is the right that I have. And so I am giving you this answer. I'm telling you. Remember, John is writing this to clear the Jewish mind. It's a reference of the Messiah. The Son of Man is the reference given in Daniel chapter 7. And this healing of the lame person is evidence that was to be given that the Messiah was going to come. How will we know he's going to heal those that are lame, those that are blind, Isaiah chapter 35, evidence that the Messiah, that he was going to actually raise the dead. Um, God kills, God makes alive, that's in Deuteronomy. Judgment, judgment belongs to God, that's also in Deuteronomy. All these things that he's saying are things that God does. And by Jesus saying, I'm doing these things too, there is no doubt in his mind and in their minds that he's claiming to be the Messiah. 
And what's amazing is what Jesus is giving us the understanding is saying, if you want to see how God feels about man, if you want to see how God reacts to sin, if you want to see how God is in regard to human situations, you just need to look at Jesus. How Jesus reacts is how God reacts. The mind of Jesus is the mind of God. The words of Jesus are the words of God. The actions of Jesus are the actions of God. That's powerful. That's, that's the rub. That's the, the issue. That's what we believe who are followers of Jesus is that God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. When you want to make something known, especially in matters of love, you don't send someone else. You go yourself. When I proposed to Corrine, I didn't ask my brother, hey, will you go and give her this ring? Tell her she's the one. No, in matters of love, I had to be the one who did it because this is how I feel. See, God didn't just send a prophet. God came himself to make this message known. Because in issues of love, You go yourself. And the son shows him all that he does. This is obedience not based on submission to power. It's based on love. The unity between Jesus and God is a unity of love. He did this because he shows him all that he does. That's the relation. That's the dynamic that they had. And when he goes on to talking about dead and life, he's talking in two senses of dead. There's a physical death, but then there's a spiritual death that's taking place also in these verses. Um, You know, he is the giver of life. He is life. And so God has entrusted all these things, this judgment Onto the sun. Now remember in, in chapter 3 it says, I did not come to condemn the world, but the world is condemned already. But here he's saying he, he is the judge. We talked about this a little bit. What do you think he's talking about? The father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. What does that mean? Um, moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. The judgment comes when people make a decision. Remember, we talked about, you know, if there's a masterpiece, if there's a, a painting by Leonardo da Vinci, and, and it's a masterpiece, and you go to a museum and this is priceless, And you say, well, you know, I don't really think it's that great. Your taste is being judged. See, it's already a masterpiece. Your saying it is or isn't doesn't make it a masterpiece or not. It just tells us that you don't have the understanding that made it a masterpiece. And so... Judgment has been given to Jesus. If we will not see him for who he is, then 
judgment is on us because we're not recognizing who he is. That makes sense? And, and so it's not like he's saying, well, I'm going to get you because, no, the judgment falls on you because you're not seeing the picture. If you want to be blind to the masterpiece, you can. It's talking more about your inability than what the painting is. If you won't see Jesus as who he is, then it's telling more about your inability to recognize what God has done than anything else. And so you're judged because God has entrusted the Son, has revealed himself through the Son, so that if you don't honor the Son, that means you really don't know the Father. So if a person is is trying to find out who God is, who is this God? I just want to find out who God, and they get a clear picture of who Jesus is, because remember, there's a lot of unclear pictures of who Jesus is, and most of that lack of clarity has come through people who call themselves Christians, by the way. If there is clarity on who Jesus is, and you see him, but you reject him, then you are rejecting the clarity of who God is. And so you're not seeing the God that you want, and so you're rejecting it, even though it is the true God, which can happen. Yeah, Cindy. Right, their their pride and their understanding of what they believed God was and they couldn't get past their own mindset. You know, there was a time where if you were to go to the movie theaters, you were you could not be a, a Christian. Christians didn't go to the movie theaters or play cards, by the way. If you played cards, you were just very loose living. Imagine that. Go fish, you know? I mean, it's just like... Those kinds of things, why? Because that was the mindset of a lot of people. And so culturally, we have a lot of mindsets that we we set and we say, this is how we know if you belong to God or not. Because why? This is how we interpret what God thinks. And this was how they interpreted what God thinks based on the scriptures that God gave. Just like this person in my dialogue, based on the scriptures that I believe God has breathed to us, came to a conclusion that Jesus only loves and died for those who are the church. Everyone else, well, to hell with you. He didn't say that, but really that's what he's saying. And so really this is what we, and so their interpretation of God's scriptures led them to a conclusion that was blind to the reality of who God was. And and we'll get there. I think, because Jesus is going to spell this out. Oh, we're running out of time. Um, Okay, let's push on. Very truly, verse 24, I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now he's talking about spiritual life here, will be made quickened by the voice of God and be connected to God. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to also have life in himself. Again, this is saying he is a source of life and has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Now he's talking about physical death, okay? And those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. I seek not to please myself, 
but him who sent me. And so Jesus is saying his claim to be a judge is based on the claim that he has the perfect mind of God. In other words, he's not being tainted by his own desire. This judgment is coming directly from God. He doesn't judge with the inevitable mixture of human motives. He, he judges with perfect holiness, perfect love, perfect sympathy of God. There are so many situations where I'll hear a story. Um, you know, Gabe works in a home where he cares for these children. And you hear some of these children who are now in this foster care and their stories are horrific. The abuse that takes place and, and the problems that these kids have because of the abuse that has taken place to them. Does God recognize that? You see, God doesn't judge anyone without an understanding of what has happened to them. I have complete confidence that God's judgment will take into account everything that a person has had to go through. Everything. And so he doesn't judge this kid who has been sexually abused and physically abused and just given so many skewed ideas of what life and what love is on the same level that a person has clarity on those things. God is going to take into account those things. His judgment is perfect. He's not so by the law, this is how everything's going to be, that he doesn't take into consideration all those things. And I'm thankful that he actually cares. I'm going to keep pushing. Verse 31, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Again, this is based on their scriptures in Deuteronomy. The, there had to be a testimony other than yourself. They used to say a man is not worthy of belief when he is speaking about himself. Okay, You have to have someone else. And he says, you have sent John to John and he has testified to the truth. This is John the Baptist. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. In other words, I'm telling you, John bore witness of me. John was a lamp that burned and gave light and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. In other words, they liked John for a while, but now they're disregarding him and his testimony about Jesus. Verse 36, I have a testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. In other words, John was a testimony, but also, hey, I just healed a guy. You go heal a guy. Oh, you can't? Oh, okay. Maybe God is with me. See, that's kind of what he's saying, not in that way, but, you know, kind of standing out that way. Hey, look at the things that I'm doing. That should tell you something. Verse 37, and the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Now, he's getting personal. You, the ones who have been studying the scriptures, don't even know the voice of God. Why would he say that? How could he say that? His word doesn't dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Jesus was what? The word made flesh. How can you say you believe in God when the word of God is before you and you're rejecting it? Something's missing. 
How can you call yourself a Christian and you don't love the people around you? Something is wrong. How can you say you love God who you haven't seen when you hate your brother who you do see? Something is wrong. Don't tell me I'm a Christian. Don't go to your church. Don't study your Bible. Don't do all those things and then reject the truth of who Jesus is. I I don't care about those things. I don't care if you speak in tongues. I don't care if, if you know the Bible backwards and forwards. I don't care if you sing and you dance and you do all these things. If your character isn't aligned with the character of God, something is wrong. Not that you have to be perfect, but if you are in line with who God is, then it is going to show up in how you live. But we want to get so, oh yeah, I do this. Oh yeah, I know this. Oh wow, we did this. Oh man, this was happening. I I mean, I've been involved with extremes as far as my faith. I've been involved with Pentecostal churches and I've been involved with some legalistic churches. And I've seen problems in both. Where, oh, the Spirit of God is moving. Yeah, well, why are you still having an affair? Don't tell me the Spirit of God is moving. Look at your life. That doesn't line up with who Jesus is. Well, we know the word. Oh, you know the word. Then why do you gossip so much? Then why do you badmouth people? If you know the word of God, why isn't your life in line with the character of God? And Jesus is saying, you know all these things, but you're rejecting the one he sent. His word doesn't dwell in you. Something is amiss. And he's hitting the nail on the head. Verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You study the scriptures, you think that's your key, but here I am, the revelation of all that they talk about, and you don't see me. You're not reading something. You're missing some big points here. Okay, I think we can finish. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Jesus is taking off the gloves, and he's he's coming at him, And he's letting him know, you know, all your religion... All your beliefs, they're doing you no good. You put your confidence in Moses. Well, Moses talked about me. How can you say you believe in him when you don't believe what I say? And it's really important that we learn this lesson because I think there is just a powerful message that Jesus is bringing to the Jewish religious people at that time and to the Christian religious people of our time. If you fail to recognize God's love and value for people, you will fail 
to represent Jesus Christ. If you don't love people, then you don't know God. Jesus said, I just healed a man and you're squabbling about the law. You don't know me. Because God cares about people. And so he's pushing this home and he's confronting them with their own beliefs to get there. And I think the same thing should be done with us. If we care more about our traditions and what we believe and we will violate the care and concern for people, then we are misrepresenting the heart of God. Now, they they work in conjunction, but we need to be careful that we don't use our religion to condone our behavior when it is in violation to the heart of God, if that makes sense. Any thoughts on these verses or anything that we talked about? Well, and what it meant. It's not just the day. It's what the day meant to them and what they made it to mean. The day became more important than people. The same thing could become true with us. There are some people, if you work on Sunday, you're looked down on. Well, you, you should quit that job because you work on Sunday. Well, if I quit that job, I don't get to feed my family. I'd say don't quit your job, feed your family, and Go to church on Wednesday, you know. <laughs> you know, there's different times. I mean, even the apostles would go to the, you know, the gate and see the man, you know, and they'd say he's looking to them for money. And Peter would say, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And it's like, it doesn't seem like he had faith to get up and walk, but they brought healing to them. So I don't know why and when the healing takes place in some of these instances. Jesus healed a lot of people on Sabbath, and it wasn't a coincidence. He was, he was pushing the point purposefully, and he knew where it was going to take him. But his, it was important that this point was made you know, as far as the Sabbath and their legalistic viewpoint of those things. And so, you know, this guy, his positioning and how he's used, I mean, Jesus picked him out for a reason, you know, and no doubt it was knowing that this was going to stir up controversy. It could have stirred up a whole lot more. Jesus could have leveraged this a whole different way. You know, he had really bad PR, you know, just the way he would do things. Don't just leave, you know, you should make a, get a, he could have had a real movement going if he wanted, but he didn't. You know, there was a purpose why he would leave and why he'd come back, why the crowd would get big and then he would take off and go across the sea. And he, like, minimized the crowds and he kept that on purpose um, because he didn't trust the crowd and those people. So I don't know if that answered the question, but, you know, I don't know why, you know, this guy's faith was there or wasn't there and, you know, how this guy responded. I don't know. It's an interesting thing. Yes, Eileen. Yeah, Um, it says a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, paralyzed there. So it seemed like there was a group of people there. And that's, again, that's in certain manuscripts. Um, What it's believed is that that was to tell us why, that was put in to tell us why the people did that. Um, Barclay in his commentary talks about there being an underwater stream that would feed these pools. And so every now and then those pools, the stirring of the water would take place because of the streams that were going underneath them. And so people believed, like, again, I talked about there was just a lot of, you know, um, 
superstition in water that, you know, oh, the stream's water is used for healing. You know, I mean, throughout mythology, you know, there would be sacrifices offered before you'd cross water because you had to please the, you know, spirits of the water, those kinds of things. So water was a very vital part of that world. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, that verse 4 that's not in some of the newer manuscripts, it's believed that it was put there so that people would have that kind of understanding. So if you have like a new King James or King James version, that'll be there. But usually the American Standard, new international version, um, they won't have that or a revised standard version won't have that verse. What do you have? New King James? Yeah, again, I think that verse was there to give us an understanding of what the you know, superstition was to that, in that verse. And then it found its way in some of the later manuscripts. Any thoughts? Any more? Well, let's, we're good. All right. Let's close. Father, again, um, Lord, there's some powerful things here in these verses that challenge me and my faith, and I pray challenge all of us, Lord. Uh, may we never come to a place where our religious posture gets in the way of our heart for people. Uh, Lord, thank you for fighting for us uh, in spite of the religion, in spite of the things that would legally oppress us. Lord, you fought for our freedom and you fight still for it. And I thank you for that, Lord. Bless our time now, Lord, as we leave and we go home again. May we ponder these things and may they influence our way of thinking and our way of living. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.